welcome to the Spiritual Awakenings podcast. I'm David Lorimer, co-editor of a new book, Spiritual Awakenings, Scientists and Academics Describe Their Experiences. It's published by the Academy for the Advancement of Post-Materialist Sciences and is available in paperback and Kindle editions. In this series of weekly podcasts, we'll be sharing the 57 original essays together with introductions and epilogue from my co-editor, Professor Marjorie Willicott. We hope you enjoy them. Openings and Promptings by Edward F. Kelly Read by Martin Redfern Let me start by saying that I feel more than a little diffident in talking about these experiences of mine, which seem pretty pale in comparison with many of the others reported in this volume. Like William James, I have only a mystical germ, the sense that thither lies truth, and nothing resembling a full-fledged mystical experience of my own. Nevertheless, the events I am about to describe represent for me instances of genuine contact with James's more or Meyer's subliminal self, and they certainly influenced my personal and intellectual trajectory in many ways. The first occurred when I was on my way home from France on a studentship in late spring of 1963, following a year of wandering around in Europe and North Africa, after graduating from college with no clear sense of what to do next. One evening I smoked hashish with some newfound friends on board, and finding myself a little disoriented and uncomfortable, went back to my cabin and flopped down on the bunk in semi-darkness with my eyes closed. After a few moments, I imagined myself being up in the air, flying about, and realised I could probably go anywhere I chose. I suddenly found myself transported to a great height above the Nazi meeting hall in Nuremberg, of which I had recently seen a picture. I could barely recognise it from that altitude, and decided to try and go down towards it to have a better look. At once I found myself standing on the ground in that horrifying place, seeing the sights, hearing the sounds, and even smelling the sweat of overheated SS troopers in their leather uniforms. I had written my undergraduate honours thesis on creativity, and was aware of the role often played in it by unusual forms of imagination, but I had never before experienced anything remotely this intense, even in my most vivid dreams. Somewhere inside me, I realised, exist imaginative capacities that I'd never before encountered, but that could be accessed when conditions were right. In retrospect, I had made contact with the imaginal realm. The second occurred late in graduate school, around 1969. I was working on my dissertation, which involved development of a computer program intended to improve automated content analysis by supporting recognition of the main senses of high-frequency English words in context. During that process I had become deeply disillusioned with the emerging Computational Theory of the Mind, CTM because it had become evident to me that no computer-based intelligence lacking consciousness could genuinely grasp linguistic meanings or distinguish systematically between metaphorical truth and literal falsehood. 
At about the same time, I had developed an interest in psychical research and experimental parapsychology, resulting from the sudden and totally unexpected appearance of mediumistic abilities in my own sibling, an older sister. I looked into the subject a bit on behalf of my mother, who was clearly worried, and quickly discovered its importance to William James, which surprised me. A thousand or so pages of my sister's automatic writing contained only marginal evidence of Psy, but other aspects of her mediumship directly echoed observations made by James himself almost a century earlier. Her controls, for example, included typical characters such as an Oriental wise man, an American Indian, and a couple of Christian saints. Their communications, moreover, seemed mostly to exemplify the curiously optimistic blend of philosophy and water that James had suspected of all coming from the same source. A couple of other things, however, rarely grabbed my attention. For example, when Wu Sung came on board, her face would undergo an extraordinary transformation, with her eyes seeming to stretch out and take on an oriental cast. I didn't think anyone could do that voluntarily. It also struck me as physiologically odd and puzzling that after a half hour or so of just sitting and talking quietly, she would rush to the kitchen and slug down a large volume of orange juice or similar, as though dehydrated from intense exercise of some sort. My interest had been piqued, and while continuing to work on my dissertation, I began to read more and more widely on psychical research and experimental psychology. It was approaching time to take a job decision, but what to do? I had already received an offer for a lucrative position in San Francisco relating to my dissertation, but had also begun corresponding with J.B. Rhine in Durham about possibly going there to do psychical research. In the midst of all this internal turmoil, our department was visited by Daniel Broadbent, one of the pioneers of the cognitive revolution, who gave a talk based on his book Decision and Stress. The central point of the talk was that even statistically sophisticated persons routinely fail to adjust their opinions as rapidly as they could and should in response to new evidence. That night I had an unusually vivid dream, in which I was again attending a lecture by Daniel Broadbent, but this time it was taking place out in a field somewhere, and I was standing at the back of the audience, at the edge of a stream that ran behind me, alongside a tall bank on the far side. At some point in the talk I looked over my shoulder and saw that the bank was eroding, and that emerging from it were the spines of two imposing leather-bound volumes inscribed with the title THE BLAKE in big gold letters. I rushed across the stream and clambered up the bank with the intention of retrieving those volumes, and woke up with my job decision made. I had recently been reading about the mystical poet and artist William Blake, and clearly understood that this big dream was counselling me to head to Durham to engage with the really important stuff. Thus was made the most significant career decision of my life. Another significant event that had occurred late in graduate school 
was that I attended, almost by chance, what turned out to be an enormously impressive talk on Advaita Vedanta by Swami Raganathanda, a high-ranking member of the Ramakrishna Vedanta Society. I resonated both intellectually and emotionally with the core ideas of Vedanta and have continued to do so ever since. That talk also inspired me to make my way over to the Society's Boston branch, where its director, Swami Savagatananda, introduced me to the Yoga Sutras and some basic practices for meditation. I began twice daily meditations at once, and continued this after moving to North Carolina in September 1971. I was living in an old farmhouse west of Chapel Hill, and had set aside a room specifically for that purpose. Two striking things happened that confirmed the potential significance of meditation as a tool for cognitive psychological investigations of normally hidden potentials in the mind. In the first, I was just sitting there observing my breath and repeating an accompanying mantra, when I suddenly realised with crystal clarity that my consciousness had assumed the same relationship to the dimensions of the room that it normally bears to those of my body. In effect, I had become the size of the room. The instant I recognised this startling change, of course, it vanished. In the second, I found myself standing on the back porch of the house I had grown up in, in Amawalk, New York, on a large rural property associated with the reservoir system of NY City, where my dad was employed as a civil engineer. As I stood on the porch looking towards the trout stream that issued from the bottom of the reservoir, I saw, in a single vivid glance, everything from the dam far to my left to our barn and the woods far beyond, far to my right, and everything in between, all at once. What was startling about this is that I knew it was not physically possible to take in that much scenery without moving my eyes at least once. Similarly, lots of other experiences I'd had in or near that spot were also simultaneously present in a way impossible to describe. Something within me, again, had been able to integrate large amounts of information into a single hyper-complex cognitive unit in a way I would not normally have been able to do. The bottom line? Serious scientific exploration of meditation and mystical experiences has barely begun, in my opinion, and is urgently needed. These are the kinds of experiences that caused me to become an academic researcher exploring the fundamental nature of consciousness, to step away from the prevailing neuroscientific paradigm in experimental psychology. Following my work with J.B. Rhine, an appointment at Duke and work at other institutes in the area, I moved to the University of North Carolina and from there, in 2002, to the University of Virginia, where, as a research professor, I could devote myself full-time to investigating the paranormal topics that most interested me. Thanks so much for downloading the Spiritual Awakenings podcast. Do join us for the next episode.